HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays and inspiring public programs year-round. Learn more at bbg.org. You're listening to Heritage Video Network. We are a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we are celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we are just getting started. Find us at heritageradiantwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome rising star food writer and editor Osai Andalin. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Osai about whether all food writing is political, what defines an eater young gun, and we'll hear Osai's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, in our first segment, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Few things were closer to Julia's heart than food writing and encouraging others to do it. Recipes, whole cookbooks, travel logs, literary narratives, you name it. In episode 64, Julia's biographer, Laura Shapiro, described in her Julia moment that Julia's voice is so strong, it's like she's right there with you in the room when you read her correspondence. That's really the definition of good writing. The Foundation has been privileged to support the Oxford American, a quarterly literary magazine, often described as the New Yorker of the South, dedicated exactly that, good writing about Southern culture. This includes groundbreaking writing about Southern food, under the watchful eye of writer and editor John T. Edge. Check out episode 11 of this podcast if you're not familiar with John T. and his work. Produced with support from the Foundation, filmmaker Ethan Payne's latest video, about the generational meaning behind John T.'s mother's catfish stew, is now on the Oxford American website. The foundation recently expanded its support to include the counter-service column written by rising star food writer and editor Osai Andalin. It's part of Oxford American's The Buy and Buy series. Like many food writers, Osai's work covers a diverse gamut, from more straightforward reporting about new chefs or dining trends to deep thought pieces about Southern food history and food and identity. A James Beard award-winning writer who's been featured on Chef's Table, NPR, and The Splendid Table, and named one of 30 women moving Southern food forward by Southern Living Magazine, while she was deputy editor of Gravy, a publication of the Southern Foodways Alliance. Osai joins us today to share a perspective on the art of food writing. Welcome to the podcast, Osai. 
Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So let's start with what drew you to the American South, because I understand you're not actually a Southerner, and becoming a food writer who's based there. I was born and raised in California, where um, I lived throughout the state, um, all regions, northern, central, and southern. My my mom and my aunt were born in L.A. and are still based in in that area. And um, I finished college at UCLA and was kind of having trouble finding my footing. This was like the early 2000s, and um, I, I was trying to work in entertainment and kind of bumping up a lot of different obstacles as one does um, and looking for an opportunity to just kind of take, take hold a little easier. I didn't want to have to work so hard to, to get so little. Um, and um, Atlanta beckoned to me. Um, I was in a relationship at the time, which is, you know, always uh, a, a an easy uh <laughs> an easy access point to to relocating but um the relationship didn't last but Atlanta did for a while and <laughs> I've been in the south ever since um I I think I found in the region um so much of what gets missed in the narrative about this place on the west coast especially when you live in a place where everyone is trying to get to you know there's still a huge narrative around California being a kind of promised land. And, you know, in the early years when I was in Atlanta, people would oftentimes respond in shock that I had left LA to move to Atlanta. Even people who were from Atlanta would, would be almost dismayed on my behalf. And that has shifted where there seems to be a renewed sense of pride and celebration and what the South has to offer um, in terms of, you know, its contributions to culture on, on many levels um, and, and more than just sort of a more livable, you know, kind of cost of living ratio as a mid twenties uh, post-grad, you know, I, I found, um, you know, I, I found kind of myself diving into this whole part of the United States narrative that had been truncated for me for a really long time. And I, I've been unpacking it ever since. Yeah, no, and I'm hoping to talk more about that today because I'm also, I'm sort of everything because I'm a Midwesterner and sort of because I was raised there, but my family is from New York City and I was born in California and then I lived in California. So I have these, this sort of understanding of the coasts, but then an appreciation for that the coasts are not all there is to America or the the right way, so to speak. So I'm really interested to hear more from you. And I think that's also what's drawn me to the Oxford American as this, you know, for me, it's really this uh, relatively undiscovered literary gem that's hopefully growing. And, and I wanted to ask you, sort of through that lens, if you're listening, and you're a coastal elite or a coastal denizen, and you don't know much about Southern culture, you know, why do you think you really should? And, and what does the Oxford American sort of offer curious readers in that regard? Well, uh, gosh, I mean, uh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of stuck with just so many different ways to answer that question. I, I'll start with my, I, I can start with myself. Uh, when I, um, when I got to Atlanta, you know, it's a metropolitan city, you know, it's fairly, fairly big. You've got a lot of different neighborhoods and, and nooks and crannies and, and, niches to discover. Uh, but I, I would say like when I really kind of started to get how much of the expanse of the South I didn't know about, it's when I took a road trip with a friend of mine um, from Atlanta and we were driving to uh, Newport, Kentucky. She was doing some archival family research. And, you know, um, I'm going to get to your Oxford American question, but the point I want to make is that when we started coming into Kentucky, I was stunned because it was just beautiful. Like it was spring, the greens and blues were so vibrant. You know, there were all these pastoral hills, you know, alongside the highway with, you know, white horses. I mean, it was super idyllic. And, and you have to understand that for a California kid, no one had ever said anything explicit to me about Kentucky, but the general 
perception was like, that's a place you don't want to go because why would you go there? Right. Like, I mean, you know, mm. it was just not, it was not celebrated. It was not lifted up. You know, if it was talked about at all, it was, you know, very uh, pejoratively. Um, and I'm sure many people who are from larger urban areas can, can relate to kind of just that, that hue of sort of dimness. You, you just didn't care very much. And, you know, as I was kind of bopping around Louisville and, you know, we got out in the car and um, hung out in a couple of different places on our drive, um, I just felt like I'd been lied to. And I couldn't point the finger to anyone in particular, but I, I felt kind of cheated. Like, this was my country. I didn't need a passport. It's relatively inexpensive to get here. And this whole time, I'd been missing out on this beautiful space. Um, and, and so, you know, with the Oxford American... Um, I think the writing there, you know, it's been around for a couple of decades now under the exquisite leadership of Eliza Bournet, you know, their first women um, editor in chief. She, you know, has conceived of, you know, kind of taken the mantle of and, and shifted this magazine into um, such a broad conversation around not just literary um, treatments of, of the South and beyond, um, but but with music and events um, and, you know, all kinds of touch points. You know, the first piece I actually did for the Oxford American was not a food piece. It was an essay that reflected on my father's death. Um, he had died in Benin City, Nigeria, uh, which is where he was from um, and where he returned to after spending most of his adult life in California. And um, I I relayed the experience of being a part of this, you know, lengthy burial um, in relationship to my understanding of Black American funeral traditions and the crossover that I saw there as a visitor, because this was only the second time I'd been in the country um, since visiting as a child, which I was too young to remember, um, and, um, and as a daughter, right, who no longer had a father. So, um, you know, being allowed to sort of play with geographical borders, with, you know, literary genre, you know, in terms of memoir and reporting, you know, that's something that the Oxford American um, so, so generously supports. And I have felt very fortunate to be um, both in print and on the website um, with that publication. And I'm really curious of your answer, just given everything you've just discussed and, and my own background. Do you, do you think that there's something incumbent upon people on the coast or so-called coastal elites to, to actually make more of an effort to understand the rest of the country? I don't know if incumbent is the right word for me, but I would say I think it would be wise. I, I think it depends on what you're interested in. You know, like, do you really want to know where you're from? I don't know that, you know, I think it goes both ways too, but I think you mostly see people from smaller towns and more um, kind of, like you said, the coastal spaces, um, or excuse me, like you mostly see people from smaller towns going out to the coastal areas. You don't as often see folks going the other way around. And I think that would be really, um, and I think it would be an interesting exercise to sort of be a tourist in, in your own country. You know, I've, I think I'm at about 40 states now um, in terms of places that I've had the chance to visit and spend time in. Um, and that has really broadened and shaped my sense of, how vast this country is, how diverse it is, how specific to, you know, regional and, and local traditions we are. Um, there's a seamlessness that gets transported globally about what America means. And sometimes as an avid traveler, you get confronted with that. You know, I was just in the Middle East for a couple of weeks. I was in France again recently, um, last week. And sometimes you bump up against, you know, a definition of America that doesn't necessarily fit your personal identity, but which you're still somewhat held responsible for. Um, I, I think some of that might change if, if people were a little bit more willing to venture out and find value in the places that don't get talked about quite as much. 
Well, yeah, and I think, I mean, travel always sort of opens one mind to a lot of things and also in a weird way makes you introspective in, 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 or forces you to be because you're a little more isolated when you travel because you're in an unknown place and, or lesser known place. And I think Julia's life really reflects that. And I'm struck by over the summer, uh, we were sort of, my family was traveling for like three weeks and we ended up deciding, you know, that we were going to eat somewhere local rather than what was by the side of the highway and discovered this place in Idaho called Soda, I think it's called Soda Springs. And there was like, it has its own geyser there and is totally different experience than Yellowstone. And then as you're talking about, we're like on the main street and suddenly we're noticing, well, this little town has really interesting architecture. Well, there must be a reason behind that. And it's all those right unlayering that I think you're talking about. And that is often reflected in in the Oxford American articles. Exactly. And, and from such a personal sense of authorship, you know, I, um, one of the things I've really loved about writing for the Oxford American and working with um, Eliza specifically is uh, that preservation of of voice. So I feel like you always have a sense that you're going to get this very high quality level of writing um, when you look at the Oxford American, but you also have a sense that the person speaking to you is going to come through, you know, in terms of their experiences, their rhythm, their cadence. That's hard to do as a publication. It's hard to do as an editor. Um, some people are better at it than others, you know, and I've saying this from being someone who edits other people's work and who uh, writes my own and, you know, is often handing stuff off to be uh, reviewed, you know, caring for someone's voice in such a way that they emerge more themselves than when they started with that draft is a special talent. And I, um, I, I think the Oxford American does such a beautiful job of kind of introducing us to these uh, different spaces, places that we've maybe never heard of or people who we have heard of, but we get something different about them. Um, you know, there's just always some, some, um, you know, some layering that, that gets un- uncovered. And, and often I think there's something of a surprise in that there's a correlation sometimes to the South that you weren't even expecting, right? So um, whether, you know, it comes through a report on um, on, a, on a musician that you might know, or, you know, even in some of my more recent work uh, with the Counter Service series, I'm not necessarily always talking about a quote-unquote Southern experience, right? But these things translate from and are rooted in me being geographically where I am based. So that makes it a Southern story, in fact. And, and that that is something that I think has a lot of legs to it. So... On this podcast, we've had a fair amount of discussions going back to when we talked to John T. and other people about Southern food. So let's do some food talk now. And how Southern food really informs maybe more than what people are used to thinking about what is American food. And I was just curious, is, is that a view that you share or have come to share? And do you think it's important? And do you also think that this overall narrative about what is American food and where it comes from and who created it and whose contributions are there is is a narrative that really requires kind of constant or at least continued revision? Absolutely. I mean, I I think we're just starting to understand more clearly um, who who we really are. And that kind of goes back to your initial question about moving about this country in a more deliberate manner. Um, you know, I, there, there are a lot of people who've been contributing to the notion that American food is represented by Southern cuisine and that Southern cuisine is rooted in the, the contributions and, and the, the practices of African people and their descendants here. You know, I think of Jessica Harris, as uh, one of the foremost voices in that regard, um, not always to uh, welcoming audiences, who, you know. So, you know, I, I'm very much um, of the mindset as a student first that, um, that wow, you know, I, I didn't, you know, it's kind of like this, this unveiling, like this, this layering that, you're, that we've been talking about. I, I didn't know this was here, right? I mean, even in my own household, you know, one of my earliest pieces kind of connecting the dots for myself was 
juxtaposing my Black American maternal heritage. Oh, my, my maternal grandparents are from Louisiana and Mississippi. They migrated to Los Angeles. Uh, which is where my grandparents met and married um, uh, in the 40s. And then my father, you know, who is from Nigeria, born and raised there, and he, you know, immigrated to San Diego where he met my mom. They were in college. So, you know, I had, uh, you know, up, up until my early teens, a household that was very much, you know, the bookend, so to speak, of of this culinary conversation. No one ever parsed it that way. No one ever talked about it that way. These things weren't broken down and analyzed. It was just, this is what we ate. Um, and it wasn't until I'd come to the South during a time when uh, the region, I think, from a culinary perspective, was reflecting on its own voice and thinking about, you know, what do we have here? What can we make use of? Where does this, where does this all fit in? And uh, people were being given the opportunity to do that in a fine dining way. I, I, I think I think sometimes that gets talked about like, and then you know the Renaissance happened, and it's like, well, this was always here, but people who were doing it weren't always the ones being lifted up, or it wasn't always happening in a fine dining establishment where a restaurant critic at a magazine might notice it. Um, I think people have gotten a lot better about, uh, you know, spreading out their their reporting and research to be somewhat more introspective and thoughtful. Uh, but at, at the time, you know, this was kind of a, a stunning conversation for me because I felt like, once again, like everyone knew something I didn't. Like, how how did I not connect, you know, Obono soup with these, you know, great stews coming out of the Creole South, you know, like it, it never, it never clicked for me that way um, until I was living in Atlanta. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's, that's kind of a, a, a wonderful legacy, you know, of, of writers who've been telling the story and, you know, hosting events and creating opportunities for us to, you know, engage more uh, intentionally with, with this, very black American history. And we're starting to see that reflected more in the coverage of African-American chefs at the fine dining level. And, you know, hopefully more, more cookbooks coming out um, in, in the next couple of years that will, uh, that will start to allow for people to kind of get these recipes and traditions for themselves, not just as part of the soul food canon, but actually as part of a regional food ways tradition that, you know, morphed and, and was shaped by where people went and what they had to to pull from. Well, and and certainly in terms of the ideas, can America be? Does America have regional cuisine, and is there regionalism? There, there's that dialectic between. Well, you can identify what is Southern food in sort of some of the terms you talked about, but of course, a lot of that food and the people who cooked it moved around and you know had large settlements all over the country. And, but if Southern food is the only main identifiable region, do you have other regional food? Have you, have you gotten into looking at that very much? I'm, I'm enjoying that um, from the perspective as, as a participant. And I think one of the best places to do that, well, certainly traveling around, you know, you can, you can get some of that, but if you want to go to a kind of a microcosm, uh, you should go to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, uh, the Smithsonian, where the menu was um, uh, kind of spearheaded by Dr. Harris um, at, at Sweet Home Cafe, the, the restaurant style, or excuse me, the cafeteria style restaurant that sits in, in the middle of all the galleries. And uh, it's there that you have the menu broken up between, you know, the agricultural South, the West, you know, um, the the Northeast, and you have dishes that emerged from um, from all those different pockets, right? So, you know, you weren't necessarily treating things the same way in the Low Country, where you had a lot of rice, as you might be doing, you know, on the West Coast, and 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 vice versa, and you can kind of see that broken out. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I, I wrote a piece uh, a couple of years ago, kind of 
talking about my experience being in that space uh, and hearing people in line kind of make make com- make conversation, make judgments, ask questions, you know, with, with their friends and family about, you know, what was on the menu. Um, you, you may not necessarily think of tamales as being part of the Black American tradition if you're not familiar with the Delta. You may not necessarily think about using duck uh, in a particular recipe um, if that hasn't, if that wasn't how you've been raised. And so these things are challenging to a lot of people, including African-Americans whose, you know, whose history has been uh, really subjugated and torn apart and, and kind of disappeared. And so there's, there's so much work being done to, um, to pull these stories out, to tease them out, to, to have them stand alongside and apart from so much pain and, and tragedy um, and also be, be celebrated for, you know, the ingenuity, the, the creativity, um, and just the, 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 the beauty and, and, and craftsmanship, I think, that, that you find in so many of these culinary traditions. So for me, you know, I'm not someone who has gone around documenting recipes. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not at, at this point kind of doing the oral historian work of, of talking to people at length about those types of experiences. But I have been part of projects that I hope to be able to talk about um, in the near future where, you know, kind of allowing people to reflect on, you know, what they ate growing up and where they were from and, and even just that process has been really insightful because a lot of us dismiss what what was made for us, what, where we came from, what we ate, and, you know, we almost just skip over it and say, well, you know, we just had this, we just had that. And what I've been able to do in some of these conversations with a lot of African-American chefs and, and writers and historians is to ask people to, like, go a level deeper and try to think about, you know, who cooked in their family and what they made and where that came from. And, you know, you find out that, oh, this person grew up in the, um, in, in the West and they ate a lot of burritos and green chili and tamales, you know, and this person grew up in, you know, Louisiana and they had a lot of, uh, spaghetti with red sauce, uh, the side of fish, you know, and things like that. And then you start to see these patterns develop and it's been really interesting to, to listen to people reflect on that and start to note their own place in, um, you know, in a history that has certainly been documented, but has not at all been, um, been celebrated and shared as ubiquitously as it, as it could be. And as I hope it is becoming. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk to Osai about Eater's Young Guns. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays and inspiring public programs year-round. Harvest Homecoming, an old-school fall foliage festival, comes to Brooklyn Botanic Garden on Sunday, October 20th. Celebrate cider season with New York cider houses and kombucha makers, bringing hard and soft ciders and fermented drinks to try or buy. A pop-up farmer's market will feature heritage apples from local orchards. Groove to the sounds of fresh Americana music and world beats throughout the day. Bring your friends and family and make a day of it with hay rides, lawn games, a children's Halloween costume parade, and more all in the heart of Brooklyn. Learn more about Brooklyn Botanic Garden at bbg.org. Welcome back. We're talking to food writer and editor Osai Endelin about literary food writing and the future of American food culture. So before we talk about Eater's Young Guns, I I wanted to ask you, you were not really delving into anything that, at least in the way you presented, that's that's sensitive, but you kind of alluded to that there there is a pushback, let's say, when people are talking about rewriting narratives or you know, kind of pointing out to some people that maybe they've been looking at things all wrong or not seeing things. And I think it's interesting that Julia made a point of keeping her politics out of her work and to some degree was pretty adamant. 
And she was doing a certain sort of thing, which is different than what you do, for sure. But I was just curious if you think that was Julia wrong or have things also evolved where you can't really be a food writer anymore if you're not being political or so commenting socially in some way? Or, or are they just two different spaces? Well, I would say that the choice to not be political is still political. <laughs> um, and that having that choice tends to often come from a place of privilege where your ability to thrive is not predicated on whether or not people see you as whole. So what I mean by that is that someone like me at this point in time, uh, I can't see myself having conversations that are not deeply rooted in cultural experiences, in identity, in how we talk about where people's food comes from, who those people are, what their experiences have been, what, what makes their food what it is. They're, they're inextricable from one another. Um, and I, I don't know that I would say, I, I think I would say that, um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to like look back on the past with today's eyes, but I would, I would say that, you know, Julia, for Julia's work to kind of be perceived as like non-political, I, I think it would just be perceived as, but by me as, you know, the, a mainstream voice by, you know, by, by the dominant white leadership that was telling stories at, at that time. You know, I, I've had the pleasure of having some, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations with people who were doing their own, you know, who, who are making their own inroads to, to journalism and, and food writing specifically, um, you know, in the years that Julia was kind of at her peak. And it was very hard for those folks to get a wedge in the door because they didn't necessarily fall in line with what white editors felt represented America, which, you know, we know has always been um, a very specific, um, you know, white-led, white-formed idea. It's kind of only recently that we've started seeing publications like the New York Times say, hey, here are 10 essential Nigerian recipes for you. You out there, you know, in Arizona, you know, in, you know, Texas, in, in Chicago, like these are, you can make jollof rice in your kitchen and, and you will like it. Uh, same thing for, you know, Persian recipes that they did um, by Samino Strat, you know, that, and not, and not always presenting it like, you know, Ooh, here's this like exotic trip to another side of the world where, you know, you can have this global experience. It's like, no, it's definitely, it's actually just rice and tomatoes. Like you can do this. It's not, it's not going to take that much of a stretch. So, you know, I, I I want to appreciate that, you know, it's, to me saying food is just, you know, not political is almost saying, it's almost like when people respond to um, more, more challenging essays and, and articles that uh, go beyond the plate uh, with commentary, like just stick with the food. Well, respectfully, it's never been just about the food. And so, you know, perpetuating that idea tends to erase a lot of people. It tends to... Um, um, you know, um, intends to deny voice to, to folks who need it the most. Um, and, and I would say that, um, yes, there is a place and time and arena for just getting the recipe with a quick head note and kind of getting in and getting out. And then there's also plenty of room for us to engage with the way food impacts you know, our agricultural systems, which we know in this country has always been rooted in a subservient class of people doing most of the work for no to little credit or money or power um, to a dining system that is, you know, based in the plantation system of, of service that, you know, still to this day has people, you know, living uh, under a, an, un, an you know, an, inconceivably low wage, uh, you know, based off of the gratuity of, of diners. Um, so, you know, you see all these things that are deeply rooted into how we've come to be as a country. Um, you cannot just decide to just take the cream off the top and call that its own thing. It will always be connected to the root.
I think that was a great unpicking of, of that whole thing. And, I, and I'm sort of reminded that it, actually Julia didn't get away with being unpolitical. She tried because that was sort of she wa- she wanted to be mainstream. She wanted to reach as many people and she didn't want to turn them off. But of course, even some of her message was subtly subversive in terms of the idea that what she was espousing was going against what people are being told by consumer culture, by the government of what they should be eating and how they should be cooking because that was somehow progressive or modern. So I, I suppose you could say she, she never fully kept kept out of it. I don't think any of us do, you know, I, I mean, and I, I think the first time I understood that not as a writer per se, but just as a, as a human being was when I was in college at UCLA and I was very much politicized by um, some student support groups there that uh, were deeply rooted in um, student activism. You know, we had um, an advisor who was uh, from South Africa and who'd been a part of some really incredible movements there. Uh, you know, it was the students who were pushing forward the anti-apartheid movements and things like that. So there's, you know, and as you may know, there's a great history of uh, black activism at, at UCLA. Um, and that's when I started to understand that, you know, opting out is, is actually a very overt choice. Um, it's not, it's not, neutral, <laughs> you know, and that understanding, um, you know, people are free to make the decisions that they want to make. That's the country that we strive to protect, I think, here in the United States. But, you know, that's, 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 the, that's something that doesn't always get um, articulated with the weight that it should, you know, not voting isn't just being passive, you're not voting, right. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's the philosophy that I that I come from. And you have to remember too, like, you know, my, you know, my grandmother uh, left the South in pursuit of more opportunities um, for herself and, you know, her future family, the same thing with my grandfather. Um, you know, I grew up in a family where my mother especially was very vocal about being a participant in the life you want to see. You know, I had a lot of civil servants, you know, my family, my my grandmother was a, uh, she retired as the director of corrections for the state of California during governor Jerry Brown's first term. And, um, you know, my mother went, was a journalist for some time and she moved into media and public affairs. And so there was this sense that, you know, you know, you can't, you can't sit on the sidelines and expect to have your voice to be heard. You really have to be down there, you know, in the game and you don't get to uh, complain about the opportunities that you don't get if you have them and you choose not to take them. And so to me, that means, you know, whenever possible, bringing these dots to the point of, of nexus, right. To, to have, to have these conversations. And sometimes, you know, it happens in spaces that people aren't expecting or, you know, they don't really want the conversation to go that way or feels disruptive or unpleasant. But I find that the more fluidity we have in talking about this and the more uh, resources people feel like they have access to, uh, to learn about these things, um, you know, I didn't get born with this information. You know, there are a lot of books sitting around my, <laughs> my, my living room and my poor little nightstand is like almost going to fall apart with all these books sitting on it. You know, there's a lot of study, there's a lot of introspection, there's a lot of conversation with um, elders that I'm having, um, and, and other people can too. And, and I think that, uh, that that makes it so that we're all accountable. Um, and and it, it can be upsetting to feel like, man, like this, this idea of this country or myself or, you know, my background or whatever that I had isn't quite the story. Like, you know, it doesn't measure up, you know, um, it's falling apart when, when, when you start putting all these facts and truths out there, you know, I've, I've had some interesting interactions with people who've grown very upset, um, being confronted with this kind of information. It's like telling a, you know, imagine having a conversation with a 40 year old who just figured out, Santa Claus doesn't exist, right? It's like that. It's it's like that level of bewilderment. And, you know, I I have empathy, but I don't really feel sorry for folks because, you know, the information has been all around you and sort of like like I've had to pick it up and sit back quietly and kind of rock with how how urgently we have tried to ignore this narrative. You know, that's not the direction that we're going in now. And I think people need to kind of 
accept that, that there's some information that you need to get. There's some reading you need to do. There's some challenging conversations in your family that you need to have. And it may start with what's on the plate, but it doesn't have to end there. No, I think that that's quite insightful. And it's sort of a, a depiction of, I think, the forces going now is there's a lot of sort of pushback against change that, for me, hopefully seems inevitable. But at the same time, anytime there's that sort of profound amount of change, there's pushback on like, ooh, change is kind of threatening and, and disturbing. Because as you said, it's, it's changing things that people think they've always understood, either in terms of power or history, or, or even what they expect in the, in the future. So I, uh, on that, too, I think that's not a bad segue, because I'd like to hear more from you directly about Eater's Young Guns, because I think that's an interesting look. And, and I think that the quality of the work that Eater is doing as a sort of, you know, digital error food based publication um, has been, you know, growing at sort of leaps and bounds. So I wanted to hear from you as uh, about your role with the Young Guns and sort of what you've taken away um, and and obviously, for those who don't know what that means, kind of explain what Eater did with, with this concept. Right. So I've been guest editing uh, the what we've been calling the Young Guns section over at Eater for the past few months. And um, my stint is slated to wrap up in um, about, about six weeks. Um, and... Um, the the premise is that you know for the past seven years eater has been giving out awards uh they call them the eater young guns to really celebrate and showcase newer industry talent so you know certainly sometimes young but also people who may just uh have been uh later entrants into the industry who've been making um a mark uh in the in the restaurant world and that has included people who work in the kitchen people who are front of house um you know, and folks who may not even have a brick and mortar, right? Um, and so they have, you know, gone from, you know, a combination of get asking for nominations um, and submissions and then narrowing it down with uh, sort of a, um, a, between like the editorial staff and, and, and city editors and other folks that, you know, they want to use as um, references and things like that. And they have the idea, um, either is a place to have learned, just moves exceptionally fast when there's a new idea on the table. Uh, it's been pretty incredible to watch, actually. Uh, they had this idea that, you know, gosh, we've got seven years of these sort of young guns classes. You know, what if we created content that kind of was centered, not just around the alumni as a group, but, uh, you know, in terms of kind of broadening it to, to folks who are, um, who are young and new in this world. Like what, what could we find, what stories could we lift up if that was the focus? And um, they, they got a sponsor uh, with Grey Goose and they had budget for someone to come in and kind of helm that. And I was fortunate enough to be that person. And my, my uh, vision was that um, this section would not just kind of touch base with young-ish people doing cool things, um, but to also take uh, responsibility that, you know, sometimes being someone who is at the early part of your career and being lifted up is still a function of where you live and who you know, and that, you know, as much as you want to kind of break free from the, the bias, you know, an award like the Eater Young Guns Award can still sometimes fall victim to the very systems it's trying to disrupt. And so I really wanted to make a call to, celebrate people whose names are not household names, you know, who haven't been nominated for James Beard Awards, but who are still uh, doing really cool work. And so we've tried to do a mix of reporting and kind of, you know, interview and Q&A and advice um, that, that imparts, you know, not just what people are up to, but how you can get started, what things you should be thinking about, um, how people got their start, obstacles they overcame, um, you know, and kind of fun stuff like, you know, getting over really bad job mishaps. <laughs> and we're, we're quickly running short of time, but could you give us like one example that stands out in your mind of, of uh, one of the profiles that kind of represents what you were trying to seek out or however you want to frame it? Sure. So um, 
I'll talk about maybe um, the work that Angela Burke did. She's a writer based in Chicago, and she did a piece about the importance of mentorship, specifically for African-American chefs who, coming up, do not often see uh, themselves um, represented in leadership roles and uh, the importance of having a relationship with someone who's older than you, who isn't just someone who can, you know, tell you things from a technical perspective, but who can help you with, you know, being, you know, what is often uh, the experience of being the only one on the line or the only one in the restaurant um, and, and the importance of that in an in a, in a industry where you still have such a dearth of promotions, um, you know, across, across the board. Um, that, that was a great piece. I think, um, I think of another one. Um, we did a profile recently of, um, uh, across our kitchen tables, um, a, a women's based or a women's led Skillshare organization in Los Angeles, uh, where, uh, these young women decided to kind of uh, do a collective harnessing of the information they had learned as children of people who'd been cooking for for a living and take that information not just as you know bits and pieces of stuff they knew but actually own that as like this is this is our culinary foundation we may not have gone to culinary school but we can use this information and share it with each other to help uh, women of color in the LA area build their food-based businesses, whether they be retail, food trucks, future restaurants, catering, private chefing, what have you. Um, so, so, so things like that, stories like that, I think have been really uh, beautiful to to celebrate and to let people know that there are a lot of different ways you can engage and be successful in the food space. Great, thanks for that. So these days, do you think all food writing is political, or should it be? Where do you quench your thirst for literary food writing? Let us know. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. After the break, Osai is going to reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Akiko Katayama, and I'm the host of Japan Needs here on HRN. By interviewing fascinating personalities in Japanese culinary culture, I try to demystify Japanese cuisine. My guests have included sake brewers, tea experts, Japanese whiskey experts, and sushi chefs. You can find Japan Needs whenever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Osai, it's your turn. What's your Julia moment? I don't have one in particular. I would say that there's kind of been a Julia Suave <laughs> in a lot of my my food life. Um, so I majored in French in college. I've been taking French since I was in seventh grade. And, you know, so France has always been sort of a, um, a sister country to me. I started traveling there in probably like 2001. Um, my French is good. You know, I just got back last week. It was a great trip. And I think, you know, something that I appreciate from Julia is that sense of sort of an adopted country, you know, that spirit of being able to uh, find yourself in another place's culture and then and, and use that as a platform to kind of reflect on on your own. You know, um, it's no secret, you know, especially if you're a student of the Harlem Renaissance, that for many, many generations, um, many African-American people have uh, found uh, creative inspiration, uh, a sense of freedom even um, traveling to France and you know from a food perspective that wasn't something that I saw as directly but for me personally um, I've I've really started to think about France as not just a place to go to enjoy the things that you always think about like pastry and cheese and wine but to explore the cultures and the communities that are really and have been 
um, shaping France in ways that doesn't always get translated on this side. So, you know, when I was there recently, I had dinner at a Palestinian restaurant in Marseille. You know, I had, um, you know, Vietnamese egg rolls walking through the Latin Quarter. I had, you know, in Paris, I had kebab. Um, you know, I'm I'm increasingly less interested in what we might think of those iconic French dishes and thinking about the people in the in the cultures that are comprising uh, what France actually looks like today. I think that's a thread that, you know, in part I can I can connect to um, my reading of Julia Child and her enthusiasm and her deep, deep celebration of Francophone culture. Wow, that was great. I think that's a, a, an insight that we haven't had yet in Julia moment. So I really thank you for uh, bringing that forward and uh, stitching that together, I think, with our whole conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks, Todd. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to learn more and keep up with Osai, follow her at Osai Endelin on Instagram and Twitter. It's O-S-A-Y-I-E-N-D. O-L-Y-N. A reminder to keep up with us, it's at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N on Twitter. If you want to do more of a deep dive into Osai's writing, you can go to osaiendelin.com forward slash work and click away. Her recent columns for Oxford American can be found there as well. And you can also find the latest video, Much to Carry, from filmmaker Ethan Payne, which accompanies John T. Edge's latest column, My Mother's Catfish 2, on OxfordAmerican.com, where you can also find Osei's columns. The Julia Child audio clip from The Front Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. And thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lawrence Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. And if you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that helps all the more. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.